preach today. I'm going to continue. Uh, it's part two of our series or our theme, uh, which is called Ascension, a narrative of transition. Uh, and uh, just a show of hands, how many of you feel like you're in a transition right now in your life, currently right now? That's so many people. That's awesome. Look at that. Maybe that's why I'm preaching about it. I, too, feel like I'm in some different moments of transition, not out of here, leaving as the pastor. I love it here, uh, and it's amazing. So that's not one of them. Uh, so if you wanted me out, ha, ha, <laughs> Just kidding. But, uh, but uh, we're just, there's these moments where we see transition, and uh, the theme in the series that we're focusing on is to help us see Jesus accurately in these moments of shift. Because let's be honest, these shifting moments in our life, they're some of the hardest moments for us to see and to hear Jesus accurately. Um, Because there's a lot of pain that comes in change. And there's a lot of pain that can uh, come when things around you change and you're not ready for it. So we're talking about this and we're focusing on this from a biblical narrative. And today we'll be studying out of Acts 2, 42 through 47. We'll, we'll, we'll reference many other scriptures, but that will be our base today. Uh, and I referenced it last week and I, I believe the second service. Um, but when we are studying from a biblical perspective, this narrative transition is about Jesus ascending into heaven. Because how many of you know he died, rose from the dead? Uh, and then he ascended into heaven and disappeared behind the clouds. Uh, so we see this narrative take place after Jesus left that is really important for us to discern and us to see for our lives because when Jesus moves, it's important that we follow him. And Jesus will, uh, will undoubtedly in your life move. And it's not to abandon you, it's to bring you into a beautiful new place And so we all sit in this room and we all come to church, not so that we could just grow in our understanding of Scripture, but it's so that we can grow to become the Scriptures we're reading. Does that make sense? So we study to become like Jesus, not to just know about Jesus. And so we see this really beautiful impartation of the Holy Spirit in the upper room uh, when he tells the disciples to go to a place and wait for uh, the Holy Spirit to come. And they did, and the Holy Spirit came, and we studied that last week. And what we are seeing right here is the fullness and the culmination of what took place once the Holy Spirit visited the disciples and the followers of Jesus in the upper room. So what we'll see here is that when Jesus moves, there is a beautiful impartation that he has in store for your life. Do you know that? you got to understand this. In this place of transition, God has a very particular and special and specific impartation for you so that you can become more like him through this transition. You believe that? This is an important thing for you to expect of God. It is a greater impartation of God's nature into your life as you're in this shifting, changing phase. Because the disciples, they were in that place and they were expecting an outpouring of God. So I'll say this before we even get into scripture today is that as you're in this place, which was many of you raising your hand saying, I'm here. As you're in this place of transition in your life, uh, learn to expect and learn to look for an outpouring of God in that place. You cool with that? You down for that? Okay, cool. So Acts 2, 42 through 47, let's jump into there. And it describes 
what this community looks like uh, in this narrative place, this transitional place. And it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And we're going to pause right there so we can understand what this looks like uh, in this place of community, in this place of connection, in this place of family. And I'm glad we're doing baby dedications today because, well, what, what's the point of baby dedications? Somebody even asked me that this week. They're like, hey, why do we do baby dedications? I was like, that's a great question. And it's, uh, it's about the life of the parents. It's about the life of the kids. But it's really, and the point I would like to make right now, is it's actually about the full community realizing its role in other families' lives. This is like the kind of almost forgotten value in baby dedications is it's like, you know, when uh, Simba was lifted up before, you know what I'm talking about? Before the kingdom, and it's like, hey, look, this is a child that's been born into our family. Everyone take this cue as an understanding to speak the words of God, to approach this symbol-like child in this community with the heart of God, with the voice of God, with the words of God, and take care in your approach with these child or these children that we are introducing into community. So this is the aspect of community that is rich in transition. That when we are shifting and we're moving and we're transitioning, oftentimes we isolate ourselves. Are there any isolators when you're going through a tough time, you isolate? When you're going through something difficult, you isolate? I may be prone to this, maybe, maybe not. Uh, I'm not sure you'd have to ask my wife to be sure um, but there's these moments where you want to isolate and get yourself alone until you've buttoned everything up. Until everything's looking good, everything feels better, so that at some point you can go, hey, it was really rough nine months ago, but I am feeling so much better now. <laughs> and everyone's like, oh, that's why you disappeared for nine months, huh? And you're like, yeah, you know, I just had to figure some things out, and I had to do it alone, and, you know, I didn't want anybody seeing me in that state. And so we try and preserve some amount of pride when we're in these places of painful change. But it's really not the design of God's community for you that you isolate and hide yourself from it when you are transitioning or when you are evolving. See, growth and maturation, it's supposed to take place in community. And, and the reason why I believe we're not great at helping one another grow at times is because we can't stop thinking and or pinning each other in our former self. And this is a really important approach, difference that must take place. And I want to bring to light this breaking of bread idea. And I think it's going to be important. And there's this phrase, and I don't often get into uh, this, but koinonia is a very important phrase in this. Uh, have you ever heard this word before, koinonia? It's a really exciting word. I remember actually the pastor that uh, was the pastor here before me, Tim Roberson, a dear friend of mine, uh, he actually was the one I remember teaching me about koinonia years and years ago. And we thought it was such a funny sounding word when he taught us this. I was a young adult at the time. It was just like koinonia. And so I'd hug people and I'm like, man, we got to have koinonia, you know. And uh, But koinonia is this really significant thing. And, and sometimes when we see breaking of bread, and to prayer and fellowship, sometimes we see that and we gloss over it, not understanding the true biblical significance of what they were saying was taking place. 
This wasn't just eating canes together or eating chipotle. There was a very real dynamic fellowship that was taking place that was centric to or was surrounding communion. You remember the Last Supper when Jesus introduced communion to the disciples? This is actually biblically what is being referenced here. That this koinonia is not just a, it's a place of, of community. It's a place of communion. It's a place of intimacy. And when you study this out, you understand that there is this dynamic that ought to exist in community. That when we sit down and when we eat together, when we break bread and or when we drink from the same cup, that there is this very real relationship with God and relationship with people that's supposed to be growing at the same time. And sometimes we can get over spiritual about it and sometimes we can like, hey, we got to, you know, even like praying for the food to be blessed before we eat it. You know, this is something that we've been doing as a tradition for a long time and, uh, you know, I remember asking as a kid, I was like, why do we pray for the food to be blessed? Like, why don't I just pray today for all of my meals for the rest of my life to be blessed? And then we're good, you know? But we do these things out of tradition at some point. I know kind of the historical significance of it, which we won't get into. But right now what I'm going to reference is, you know, perhaps instead of praying that our food would be blessed, maybe at a time of breaking bread and drinking together, we would actually ask that God would grow and that we would grow in intimacy with God and with people around the table at that meal. See, this would be a distinct difference in just eating together and building relationship. See, koinonia, or having communion together, is, communi- is community that is driving together to be more intimate with Jesus, with his spirit, and more intimate with one another in that regard. And this is an interesting and it's a challenging dynamic because it introduces imperfect vessels. And I believe this is actually one of the most unique aspects uh, of Jesus transitioning and Jesus ascending into heaven is that it took God being in human, one single human form, and then it actually poured it out into many imperfect human forms. See, when this Holy Spirit poured out into the lives of all these folks in the upper room and way beyond that very quickly, even 3,000 in that first day was saved, what you saw was this perfect human being which left, ascended into heaven, and then a bunch of imperfect people host God in their life. And this created, as you can imagine, a lot of really amazing things and a lot of really complicated things as well. Like, can you imagine, like, we host, and, and in, the, in the Bible, in 1 Corinthians, uh, or no, excuse me, in uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 6 through 7, and we'll stay in 7, it says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. See, this is interesting to me because all of a sudden we have this very powerful, very amazing thing that lives inside of us, and yet we are still being sanctified, we are still being perfected as believers. How many of you guys have recognized the imperfection of your life? And even though you love God, it's, whoa, geez, Louise. It's not quite where I'd want to be in maturity. And we see this shift, and we see this dynamic shift, and it's, it should be understood not just in our own personal experience, but we should understand that when people experience us, 
we should understand why at times there's a mixed bag of evaluation or perspective of us. And at times they're experiencing God through us, and at times they're experiencing our humanity, or they're experiencing places of bondage and brokenness in our life. And it doesn't mean that God doesn't live inside of us anymore. What it means is that we are being transformed. We are witnessing of a God that, yes, lives inside of us, but I am not God. You are not God. And, and that's important because it means that there is this humility that ought to rest on us as we host and we are filled with the Spirit of God. We want to be led by that Spirit, but we are also cognizant of the fact, the fact that we are not God and we are imperfect and thus sometimes we'll act like God who lives inside of us and sometimes we'll act like our former selves, like our fleshly selves. Why is this important? Why is this meaningful? It's important and it's meaningful because when you look at post-Jesus Christian community, they had to explain a lot of things. They had to explain gifts. They had to talk about the manifestations of the Spirit and what it meant. They had to talk about, remember when Paul is like, hey, some people are like Apollos people and some people are Paul people. Uh, but he watered, uh, I planted, he watered, and then God uh, reaps the harvest. There was these dynamics that had to start to be explained. And if you look at, like, the Christian community, even in this valley, uh, I did a, a church search the other day on, on uh, Apple Maps. And there's a lot of churches in the valley. Did you know that? And, uh, and there's a lot of churches, there's, which means there's a lot of different, like, senior pastors. And there's a lot of different, like, associate pastors. There's a lot of different, like, boards. Uh, leadership infrastructures, groups, you know, doctrinal perspective. Like these things didn't exist when Jesus was walking around. And then all of a sudden Jesus ascends into heaven and we have a, a very fractured dynamic take place almost immediately. You even begin to see in the New Testament rivalries between different people. Uh, Paul and several people, Paul beefed a few times. And we see this dynamic took place over the New Testament and over the story of what took place after Jesus went to heaven is that the church now wrestles with the humanity of its leadership. It wrestles with the humanity of its folks that sit in the congregation. Have you ever been to a church and like thought, man, that church is toxic? And if it was this church, don't raise your hand. <laughs> <clears throat> or thought, man, that pastor, you know, there was just a, I got a weird sense, you know. I got a, have you ever been to these places where you sense the humanity of the people around you and it, it, did it ever scare you? Did you ever run away from all churches for a season because you're like, they're all crazy? <clears throat> Sometimes our, what we want from a pastor or from a church is for them to be Jesus and not human. But we really got to learn to live in this place of Holy Spirit lives inside of me, lives inside of you. And that means that nobody is each other's Lord. Nobody is each other's Savior. Nobody is each other's Jesus. But we all hopefully are doing our best to point to and glorify Jesus here on earth. Which means that we live by His Spirit. We testify to His Spirit. We speak about His Spirit. We point to Jesus and we say things like, in the name of Jesus. 
And we do these things because we don't want to draw attention to our humanity, but we want to glorify God in the midst of all of us. See, sometimes we get scared of sin in community. Sometimes we get scared of drama in community, and sometimes it leads us to not get close to community. But if we have an aversion to growing in intimacy and community, we might not realize that we actually have an aversion to growing in intimacy that God has designed us to grow in. See, God's design and intimacy with him does not negate a growth in intimacy with one another. Love Jesus and love people. You cannot say you love Jesus if you do not love people. Which means as you grow in your love for Jesus, it will challenge you and cause you to grow in your love for people. This is why koinonia is not just a vertical expression. Communion, taking part in the body and the blood of Jesus, it's not just a vertical expression. It's a relational one as well. That together, Che and I take the body and different vessels eat the, the symbolic body of Jesus. Different vessels. Different people get filled with the body and the blood of Jesus. This is the entire picture for the New Testament. It's the entire picture for our lives. And I believe a lot of us are transitioning from a place of following the idea of Jesus. And we're transitioning into a place of actually being filled with the Spirit and being led by the Spirit of God in our lives every single day. Every single day. This is the, the model and the symbolism of this thing. It doesn't really work to think of it as a human being being any of our kings or any of our lords. If you take any human being and you put them in place of authorship and lordship in your life, you have taken a human and put them in the place that God was meant to fill. It is undoubtedly the new covenant model that God would live inside of us and would author us directly directly and when others come along their role is supposed to be that of edification encouragement and exhortation of what God is doing in your life so sometimes this will show up like confirmation like oh I already saw God doing that he said that to me and yay I'm even more excited sometimes it'll be new It'll be like they actually helped you discover a mystery of God in your life. And that's amazing. But guess what? Just because you weren't mentally and cognitively aware of it doesn't mean that it wasn't what God was doing. You were just unaware of what God was doing. So see, us as brothers and sisters in Christ in this place of community and relationship, we're meant to help each other discover the will of God in transformation. Discover it. And sometimes it'll actually look like us confronting one another's sin. Sometimes it'll look like that. Like some of the best and most beautiful times in my life is when people that love me confront me. And I know that confrontation word is a little bit of a scary word and it has like a lot of triggers for a lot of people. But the, the provoking each other unto good works, the challenging one another in our lifestyle and the things we do, this is a part of what a, a community that's in intimate places actually looks like. And this is what it's describing in this scene. And it's a really beautiful scene. And when you see the things that were actually talked about and illustrated here, the apostles' teaching, like some of us just really love the worship songs, but we, we get bored in times of teaching and doctrinal introduction. That ought not be the case because when the Holy Spirit fills you, 
it does not negate the teaching of apostles or teachers. In fact, when the Holy Spirit fills you, it actually makes you really excited to hear a teacher who's talking about Jesus and teaching about Jesus. It makes you excited to receive. Because you're like, oh, I'm hearing in word that which I am experiencing in spirit. And Jesus said there will be a people who worship me in spirit and in truth. So we shouldn't be one-legged Christians just walking around on only spirit and no word. And we shouldn't just be walking around on only truth and no spirit. The spirit of God lives inside of us. Fact. The word of God is living and breathing and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. Fact. Both of these things should be the two legs that we walk on with Jesus. Happy dance. So apostles teaching, be taught. Don't, don't be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a teacher. You grab the mic. It's going to be long. <laughs> don't avoid the home groups that teach. Jump into teaching. Jump into fellowship in the breaking of bed or, and or community that is in communion with God. Sharing with one another and advancing intimacy with Jesus as relationship is growing together. This is a very specific type of relationship model that we have to say is very meaningful and important. And we're not going to say don't be friends with non-Christians, but what I am going to say is be friends with good Christians as well. Have relationship with them. Eat with them. Drink with them. And grow in your communion with Jesus with them. Does this make sense? Sometimes we swing so hard to the other side and we go, oh, Christians are the worst, man. So uh, I just don't want to spend time with them. They're all hurt and jaded and weird and religious. And sometimes because we've experienced religiosity and it was painful, we just eliminated and made all Christians extinct in our life. We took an asteroid and hit all of the dinosaurs and said, no more dinosaurs. And it's just one of those moments where it's like, look, we've, even though you've experienced religious Christians that weren't spirit-led, doesn't mean that there aren't spirit-led Christians. So find them and have some meals with them. Invite them and feed them. You know, if you invite me to lunch and pay for it, I'm almost certainly showing up. It's like... I'll be there. I'll be there. <laughs> 44 says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. Pastors all over America preach this one as this, this beautiful idea of unity in their church. Because if you're a pastor, what you do become aware of is that community has some drama. And community has some toxic, sinful patterns sometimes because people exist in community. And I remember at the beginning of pastoring, drama and toxicity was something that kind of intimidated me. I was always like, the bigger the crowd, I was like, oh, there's so many opportunities for drama. <laughs> and it used to intimidate me, and I used to just want to try and avoid it. And I used to even think, like, maybe I shouldn't put those people with those people because that's going to lead to drama. And I used to think like that, and then I really remember at some point somebody was like, it was so sin, drama, and these kinds of grievances happen in relationship. And they said this really interesting thing. They're like, but you know what's really cool is forgiveness 
and reconciliation. And those terms, those powers of God in our life are actually more powerful than sin and its consequences in community. So when you realize forgiveness and reconciliation from God is more powerful than sin and its effect, you're no longer intimidated by sin. Oh, you're like, this group sins, this group sins, and this group sins against that group, and then a cycle happens. You're, you're not scared from it and or by it, but you really take a cue from all of that and go, okay, it's time for us to tap into the blood of Jesus, which is the power to forgive, which is powerful to forgiving everything, everything, everything. Forgiveness and reconciliation can overcome sin and all of its effect if you will allow it to take place in your life. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. <clears throat> There's, when you see God in people's lives, like being actually spirit-led, it does impact a lot of different places. And it absolutely definitively impacts the economy of our personal lives. Now, there's a lot of church kind of contortion and manipulation in history that's taken place over people's personal finances. Um, you might have experienced it, might not have experienced it. You might have heard of somebody who experienced it and or watched it on TV at some point or watched a documentary. So this economy of us as believers together can be a sensitive one, but I will say this, is that when God moves in your life, it does touch on your finances. So hear from him, see him, and follow him boldly into whatever that looks like. You with me on that? Okay, cool. So you're not going to really hear from me in a lot of ways that are manipulative, hopefully no ways that are manipulative, over your finances, but God will speak to you to give generously either to church or others at many times in your life. And when he speaks that to you, you should quickly do it. Are you guys with me on that? We're talking about between you and God right now. Let's establish that, and then we could talk about the edification and encouragement of others around you, encouraging you to give generously at some other point. But let's just make a repair and a great connection between you and God when it comes to your finances. Because it exists. When God lives in your life, it touches that area as well. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. I love this because it gets into the casual of our life. You see two phrases here that I think are important. Houses, homes, and every day. When you think about every day, when you think about homes, these are the very beautiful symbolism of our casual life. And if you do something every day, it becomes a lifestyle. I've got a t-shirt that says that underneath on the tag. Whatever you do every day becomes your lifestyle. Uh, and, it, and or it is the fulfillment of your life. If you think about it, it makes sense. And when you really understand that God wants to be present in functioning in your every day, you no longer think of it as a singular Sunday once a week dynamic where you visit that friend once a week, but you think of it as every single day God is living and breathing inside of me and he wants to have his will or his way in my day. And that's beautiful. It's, it's paramount importance to Christian lifestyle and living. 
that we understand that God wants to have an effect and an authorship of our every day. Um, and uh, there's a few things that I do every single day. Uh, I, I take care of my kids every single day. Um, I am a husband to my wife every single day. Uh, I try and climb every day, but that doesn't happen. I try and do something fun every single day. And so there's things that we're driven to do every single day. And I want to encourage you, be mindful of the things you do every day. And really try and understand what it looks like to have relationship with God that is active every day. Every day. And some people want to make it uh, very pragmatic in how they create this everyday expression. Some people are like, you got to read your Bible every single day. And some people are like, you got to pray for like at least an hour in your closet every single day. And so some folks get to a place where they have like very measured ways they have relationship with God every day. And I'll say this, like creating good habits of reading the Bible and or of prayer aren't bad. But I will also say that there have been days where I didn't pray for an hour in my closet and I didn't read my Bible that day and I still had relationship and lived with God that day. Does this make sense? Incredibly significant and important that you read your Bible. Definitely 100%. Incredibly, significantly important that you pray. Very amazing. Very important. But to be spirit-led does not require you to pray for an hour and read your Bible for an hour. Does this make sense? Okay, so these things are very, very good, and they really help you to be led by the Spirit, for sure. So let's think of it like this. If I wake up in the morning and, and, and God speaks to me a scripture, let's go with John 3.16, for example. For God so loved the world. And he speaks the scripture to me. And say as I wake up in the morning, he speaks the scripture to me. And all of a sudden, I am impacted by the idea that God loved the entire world. And all of a sudden, I walk and I live and I breathe my day. And I go about my responsibilities and my passions. And I'm being absolutely encountered and formed by the idea that God loved me. But I never opened up my Bible. And I never went to a closet and prayed. Am I not in communion with God the whole day? Am I not being formed and shaped by his words the whole day? Am I not being led by the spirit that is authoring my life to say that he so loved me? God spoke to me and it formed me. God spoke to me and it shaped me. God authored his being, his his essence inside of me in that day. See, what would be really dangerous is if we create formulas to be led by the Spirit. See, to apply a religious model or vehicle to a Spirit-led life is kind of nonsensical. What you want to do is you want to actually learn, the Bible says, my sheep know my voice. When you're actually being Spirit-led, what we're talking about here is having a good relationship with the Spirit of God and knowing His voice. And being able to see him and being able to discern him. This is what we're actually aiming for. A good relationship with God. And a good relationship with one another. This is, I believe, a beautiful anti-religious model of Christianity that's very important. A religious model of Christianity says that if you do these tasks, if you do these tasks and have the appearance of godliness, that's good. 
But a spirit-led life to be filled with God is not just to have the appearance of godliness, but it's to also be filled with the power of God. Some have the appearance of godliness and forsake his power. God is interested in living inside of you in a very real and powerful way in forming you and shaping you. Because we ought not be mistaken that if we truly have faith in God, we will also have fruitfulness of his spirit in our life. We'll have love, jo- love grow, joy grow, peace grow, all the fruits of the spirit that when we are actually walking with God will grow in our life. It's evidence. It's clear lines for us to understand and to see. When you see this Lord added to him, there's an amazing idea that John 15, 4 says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I love this because in, if you study Acts, there's two different dynamics that you'll observe. God in and you in God. These two dynamics seen and talked about by Jesus in John 15 are actually really amazing lifestyle descriptions. And when you're living your life every single day, think, am I living in God and is God living inside of me? These are two really important symbolic lifestyle things for us to understand. Because when you see it in scripture, you'll understand that we have this treasure in jars of clay. Like God lives inside of you. This is real and this is actually pragmatically really significant. It means that as I experience my life, the Spirit of God is living inside of me. And when I do something sinful, it actually makes God inside of me sad. It grieves the Holy Spirit. And I can feel when the Spirit of God inside of me is sad because it's inside of me. Isn't that amazing? And sometimes we don't know what to do when we make God sad, so we put our head in the sand and or we hide Remember Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they hid? It is oftentimes humanity's first instinct when they sin to hide from God. Try and fight this instinct to hide from God, who is actually the power to repair you. Sweet. Run to God when you feel like you are the most sinful. When you're the dirtiest and the nastiest, when you have committed adultery, like the woman caught in adultery, and you are thrown before Jesus by your, your accusers, know that, that you are not meeting your executioner, you are meeting your redeemer. So what would probably be really important for each one of us in this place is for you to come up with and identify in your mind your worst, most condemning sin in your history the one you have been incapable of forgiving yourself for and receiving the grace of God. And right now, today, write it down and receive it from God today. Sweet. Okay, that's good. Acts 3.6 says this really powerful thing. Then Peter says, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. And this is where I think it's really important for this part of our teaching. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. So what does he say there? In. In the name of Jesus Christ. It's interesting. He didn't say by the name of Jesus Christ. He said in the name of Jesus Christ. Notice that because when Jesus says, abide in me and I in you, when you're authentically speaking in the name of Jesus, it's not just words. It's an actual location of your spirit and life. 
it's almost like, it's almost like referencing where your spirit's actually living. Like, hey, I'm in the name of Jesus, and so in the name of Jesus, I'm telling you about my location, walk. So God lives in you, you live in God. So when you live in God, you speak from a place of in Jesus' name. It's not just words, it's a lifestyle. It's so important to catch this because otherwise we'll just say in the name of Jesus in a religious way. And not understand it, it's an implication, it's a note, it's evidence of spiritual living in Jesus. There's many scriptures where it goes on to say this in Acts 16, 18. It says, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. Casting out demons in the name of Jesus. I'm in the name of Jesus. I'm like, get out. Get out. I'm in the name of Jesus. From that beautiful place of evidence living in Jesus, get out. Cast out demons in my name. Acts 19.5, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Oh, this is so cool. Look, we're actually going to be doing baptisms at the end of home groups at a home. Uh, and this is something that we've always loved to do. Uh, we've done it once now, but we, we've always loved the idea, and then we did it in the last time and go around. Um, and, and so we're going to be baptizing folks. If you want to get baptized, we're going to baptize uh, at the end of this month. And and, and when we baptize people, we say the phrase every time, and we say in the name, we say in the name, we say it a couple things, but essentially one of the parts we say in the name of Jesus, right? So in the name of Jesus, there's a reason we say it cyclically and in tradition. It's because we are baptizing them in the name of Jesus. We are baptizing them into the lifestyle of Jesus. We are baptizing them into the John 15 dynamic where Jesus lives in you and you live in Jesus. So that's what this entire immersion of water is all about. Otherwise, it's just dirty water that we put over there before we had chairs. And now I guess we could put it there. But otherwise, the water doesn't mean anything. Us putting you under it doesn't mean anything if it's not into the name of Jesus. Are you guys tracking with me right now? This entire thing is about real Jesus living. Like, what's the point of all this if we're not actually living in Jesus and him in us? And it happens by his spirit. And it's amazing. It's actually the phase we got to enter into once Jesus transitioned into heaven. We get to live with the spirit of Jesus living inside of us. And that's phenomenal. That's amazing. That's extraordinary. And there's several other scriptures that speak to this faith in his name. And then when they were told not to speak in the name of Jesus or preach in the name of Jesus, they declined all of the authorities and they said, nah, we can't do that. You tell us what's more important, to listen to God or to listen to you. In the name of Jesus was so powerful and so meaningful. And so as we see this unfold and really as we start to transition to a time of baby dedications, Honestly, to me, I thought it was so meaningful and significant for us to understand this in the name of Jesus thing. Because when we speak to, like, these children's life, and when we pray over them, and we say things like, in the name of Jesus, and we go on to declare something, these aren't just, like, blind declarations of what we want in our will. See, when you're praying in the name of Jesus, it ought not just be a phrase that you tag on on the end of your desires. 
But it ought to be something that is signifying what the prayer actually came from. Praying the will of God is paramount and so important in our life. So I'm not going to pray over my four kids' lives, my will. And I'm not going to pray over these kids' lives, my will. Right? Well, we're going to pray, no matter what it is, we're going to pray the will of God over their lives. We're going to speak the will of God over their life. Jeremiah 29, 11 is really clear. God has plans. It's like God has plans. So when we're praying for kids and when we're dedicating them to Jesus, what we're trying to do is we're asking God, what's your plans? What's your plans? Maybe tell me about them so I could tell them about them. That would be awesome. That would be really, really cool. I'd love to do that right now because it would be my pleasure and my honor to speak the words of God over somebody else's life. We get some, sometimes we get kind of funny about like the prophetic and about like these gifts of God. Sometimes we get really funny and we make it some kind of big, like who's the next president thing going to be. No, you know what I mean? Like the, the biblical significance of edification, exhortation, encouragement is to build up the body. That's the reason it exists. That's why we hear from God for others is to build them up in their relationship with God. Does this make sense? I, I believe God can speak to us words of knowledge for us to get cool things and all that kind of stuff. That's awesome. But when I'm talking about us speaking in the lives of, of children, of kids, of, of brothers and sisters in Christ, what I'm saying is hear from God in a way that builds people up in their relationship with God. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, well, he's got plans for us. <clears throat> you know, when... And if uh, when I, when Jess and I had our kids, uh, all four of them uh, in five years, what <laughs> what uh, what was interesting is on on my first child, Brixton, uh, and I've told you this story before, but I think it's super important for this time here. And this was before I was actually a pastor here. Um, I, I laid my hands on him and I sang that song. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here by the Torwaltz in the the NICU. Uh, And I was all alone in there, so that's why I was singing out loud. And uh, there was other babies, but... But uh, they were crying anyway, so we were good. (laughs) But, But, you know, as I was worshiping God, all of a sudden I had this very real cool moment where God began to speak to me about how... He had created my son. And it was such an honor to hear from God on his authorship of my son. Because, you know, he knit my son. He, he, he designed my son. He, he created my son. He shaped my son, his will, his heart, all of it. And so when I began to hear from God for it, I began to go, that's so cool. And I began to understand this simple idea. You know, he plans for our life. It's a narrative that God gives to each one of us for others in our own life for us to understand the story he is speaking over us. And when I began to get the narrative of my son, the, the, the kind of title paper on this thing was Mountain Mover. And it was so cool because then I became the pastor at the mountain. I was like, yay, that's pretty awesome. And then my next kids, Brightly, it was awesome. It actually took a little bit longer. It was about a month in and I was standing over a crib and I just remember so clearly him saying, she's a water walker. 
And I began to study what that story was about. I began to understand and study what it meant. She's full of courage. She's probably going to be the first person to step outside of the boat and follow Jesus. Like, this is who he said she was. And he gave me symbolism and a narrative so I can understand it and partner with her story. Because there may be times where she steps out of a boat and has a ton of courage and it, and, and it failed. Or she started to sink and drown. And then I got to tell her about why she had the courage. And not to lose the courage, but to keep her eyes locked on Jesus. You see what I'm saying? It's important that we know each other's story and what God's story is over our life so we can encourage one another in it. And I can say, brightly, baby girl, I know it hurt stepping out of that boat and feeling like you were drowning. I know that scares you, but I want you to know the most important thing was is that you were chasing after Jesus in an impossible way. And never stop doing that, no matter how hard it gets, no matter how scary it gets. Never stop pursuing Jesus in that way. And then Presley came along, and, and as I'm saying this, even parents, I want you to think about your kids right now, and grandparents and families. And I want you to think about your own narrative and your own life, because I think it's important that we understand what God is saying and doing. It'll help us understand the hard times. It'll help us understand how to keep going. It'll help us understand what God is trying to shape in us, in our character. And as, I, as my third child, Presley, was born, I so clearly, quickly, so, she's like a light, she's like a lantern. And if you know my daughter Presley, she's totally beaming with personality and totally beaming with all of this, like, she's way more like Jess than me. Like, a camera gets on and she's like, woo, I'm on it. And she's, like, ready to go and she's got all these character facial expressions she does. I'm like, whoa, you did, like, 19 faces in six seconds. That was amazing. And that's, Jer- that's Jessica. She's, a, she's a, a, an amazing little princess cartoon character. She is. It's, it's amazing. She's so full of these animations in life, and it's awesome, you know? And then when I get on camera, I'm, like, thinking a lot. I'm more like a philosopher, so I don't realize my face is just like this, you know? And I'm much more, like, just, like, in my head and uh, not as expressive. But she's a light, and she's this beaming light. And so I'm going to get to talk to her about that one day. And my last one, Monroe, she's an anchor, and biblically, the cool part about this was is that this, the anchor of our souls, this hope in Jesus. And there's these really amazing access point that each of my kids have to a nature of Jesus. He's the light of the world. He's the anchor of our souls. He leads us to walk on water to have intimacy and relationship with us. He tells us that with a little bit of faith, you can speak to the mountain and it'll move. 